to another episode of Stardust MQ. I'm Cameron Furlong. My guest today is Dr. Scarlett Howard, and she's a bee expert in everything that bees do that you would and wouldn't expect them to do. She's been involved in various projects involving bee cognition and behaviour. And so I spoke to Scarlett about all of her work involving all of the cool things that bees can do and have done for us. Why did you choose bees? So um, is there like uh, an inspiration that you had when you were younger that sort of propelled you forward into a career into studying the, 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 the nature and the, and the habits of bees? No. Um, so I was always really afraid of bees until well, right up until I started working with them. Actually working with them is what made me not afraid of them. Uh, but I was given this the advice to not choose my research project when I was starting my master's based on how much I like the specific species, but to choose it on how interesting I found the project. And uh, my primary ma- uh, master's supervisor, um, Adrian Dyer um, from RMIT University, he was the one who pitched this idea to me. Um, I hadn't met him before, but he said, bees can learn things. They can learn to discriminate between human faces. They can do color discrimination and they can do all these other sort of amazing learning um, abilities, like have all these amazing learning abilities. And I just sort of thought to myself, that can't be true. Bees are an insect. How does that work? How can they learn really complex things like that? And so I decided I wanted to see it for myself. And so I started working on it and then uh, working with individual bees. Um, I suppose that's what really helped me become not afraid of them anymore. Like, yes, they can sting the honeybees that I was working with, but um, that that was quite rare. And yeah, I, I sort of learned that they're just out there to forage and um, when you're doing learning experiments, they're very motivated to just learn and do their job basically. And they kind of ignore you a bit. So how long did it take for you to get over that fear of bees? Was it like a couple of sessions of, you know, handling them or was it a gradual thing over time? That's a great question. I'm not sure if I could pinpoint the moment when I sort of stopped being afraid of them. I guess it was quite a gradual thing. So my master's went for two years but I would probably say within the first uh, field work season that I did with them, um, which would have been a few months, so you know, the sort of the summer and spring, spring period, that's probably when I stopped. So at some point during that time, I would have stopped being afraid of them <laughs> um, and realizing, oh, they're really cool and they're not out here to sting me. They're, yeah, they're just living their lives and <laughs> I just have to not get in the way, basically. Yeah. It's like, that's the thing. People are so afraid of, oh, bees going to sting me. It's like, just, just, just let them go. Wasps, you got to be afraid of because they will, they will, they're out for blood. That's my personal opinion on, on wasps. But bees, I don't, yeah, I, I used to be afraid of them as well, but you just sort of realize, oh, they're just hanging out, you know? Yeah. Although I will, I will go in a little bit to bat for the wasps. They're also really intelligent too. And while I have been stung by wasps before, I also think they, they do get a little bit of a, a bad rap, but mm. And they're, they're quite intelligent themselves and they, yeah, they pollinate um, a lot of difference. And some of the species, they don't sting. A lot of our native species, are, perhaps all of them, but I'm not sure, but in Australia, a lot of the native species actually don't sting. Yeah, it's um, the, But those European wasps, they do. The mud wasps don't sting, right? The paper wasps do. That's another technical terminology. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not that well-versed on, on which wasps do and don't sting, but... 
potentially yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the right species and the wrong species i'm not sure i'm look i'm an astronomer i don't really i don't really look at the at the, at, at the different like specifics anyway sorry i digress <laughs> um so yeah that interesting that you that you, that you mentioned bees can uh, can think cognitively and recognize faces so is that something that you've been looking into or researching in your work uh, cognition, definitely a, a huge part of my career has been based on the cognitive ability of bees. Um, human faces, that happened well before I started my career. Um, and there's a, a few different um, studies looking into the ability of bees to recognise human faces. And also, um, speaking of wasps, um, looking at the ability of European wasps to also recognise human faces. Um, and as well, wasps that, um, you know, they have a hierarchy in their own nests. And recognizing other wasps by their facial markings too. So there's been a fair bit of work surprisingly on, um, on facial recognition ability and discrimination ability in Hymenoptera like bees and wasps. But uh, that, that hasn't actually been part of my work. I've looked at things more like uh, learning rules, like size rules, larger versus smaller, a lot of numerical tasks. So addition, subtraction, um, understanding the concept of zero, um, being able to discriminate between numbers and um, also looking at whether bees can see visual illusions in the same way that we do. Um, so yeah, that, my work's been, you know, along the same lines, but um, in different areas. Oh, wow. Okay. There's like, there's like a lot, like, <laughs> there's like a lot of things I didn't expect bees to be, to be looking into being able to do. So can they do all those things? Yes. To, I mean, to varying extents yeah. and it, it depends how you do train them. Uh, so in some cases, they're really good at it because you've trained them well. Um, and in some cases, they actually can't do a task at all because the training hasn't been adequate enough for them to learn. So there's sort of a lot of the way I train bees is based on these two methods. Um, one's called appetitive conditioning, um, appetitive differential conditioning. And that involves giving a bee a reward of sugar water. Um, when she makes a correct choice and uh, if she makes an incorrect choice um, nothing happens so you know she sort of just wasted her time a bit landing on the incorrect choice but there's no real punishment or outcome for her making that wrong choice however and that, that can allow they can learn doing that depending on the task but they learn a lot better and they learn far more complex tasks when we do appetitive aversive differential conditioning so that's where again if she makes a correct choice the bee gets a reward of sugar water but if she makes an incorrect choice she just tastes this bitter substance called quinine that they don't really like. And so there's now um, this, you know, this aversive outcome for making an incorrect choice. And so that sort of seems to modulate their attention and they actually pay more attention to that task. So um, in terms of some of my work, so when we're looking at numerical abilities in bees, we had a look at whether we could get them to discriminate numbers four versus five, four versus six, four versus seven and four versus eight, because those are really hard tasks and bees haven't previously been able to do that. So when we use this only reward-based system, um, appetitive conditioning, uh, they couldn't discriminate any of those numbers. They didn't learn to discriminate any of the numbers, um, except for weirdly four versus seven, but that's kind of an outlier that we just can ignore at the moment. Um, but when we train them using the appetitive aversive conditioning, so the reward and punishment, that's when we see that they're able to do even really hard discriminations like four versus five. So four objects versus five objects. That's something that's quite difficult for a lot of animals. Um, and so when we train them in that way, they're able to do this task of what we consider, you know, fairly high complexity or high difficulty. And so once you train them in that, so when they are presented with two different numbers, say four, say four and eight, are they able to then choose which one is four or eight without 
the reward or does the reward always have to be there? Yes. So we take for, for a certain number of trials. So say um, 50 trials um, and that involves the bee coming to where we've got an apparatus set up. So something like a screen or a Y-shaped maze um, where we put the options, we present the options to them just hanging vertically, depending on the apparatus. And we train the bee to come back by um, giving them sugar water. And that makes them want to come back again and again. And then um, each time they land and they make a choice, there's, you know, an option that might have, for example, four objects um, on it. So four circles and then another one that has five circles. And when the bee continually comes back, um, she'll get that reward for landing on four and she'll get a punishment for landing on five. Okay. And what we did in our experiment was train them on a range of numbers. We wanted them to only choose four, but we also showed them all these numbers ranging from one to ten um, so that they had a vast range of knowledge of different numbers. And then, th then we would test them on four versus five and up to four versus eight. And when we do that testing phase, that involves giving no reinforcement for choosing correctly or incorrectly. We, after the training's done, um, we don't want them to sort of be able to use any of these low level cues that hopefully we've controlled for during training, like scent marking. Bees like to scent mark things so that they know where to land. So we clean everything with ethanol between choices, but when we actually run these tests, we we make sure that there's no reward or punishment so that they can't set mark the correct thing because there's no reinforcement to say this is the correct thing. And then we just record um, a number of choices when there's nothing there to see what they think is the correct option in the absence of any, um, yeah, any outcomes they might receive re rewarding or otherwise. Okay. So how do you set the what is what is the correct choice and what is the incorrect choice? Is it, is it just arbitrary or is or do you go specifically four is always a correct choice and they have to differentiate it from another number? Yeah, it, it depends on the experiment. So um, in this specific experiment, we wanted to always train them to go to the number four, um, and so any other number that they saw was incorrect. And we also changed the patterns of all the numbers, so they might see four every time is one of the options, which is the correct option, but sometimes it's four circles, sometimes it's four triangles. Sometimes, um, you know, there's, you know, they're all different sizes, the elements we show them as well. And each time they come back, they're, they're in a different pattern, different formation. Um, so they, they can't just pattern learn because um, bees are quite good at learning patterns based on their ability to learn flower patterns. Um, so we change all those sorts of things to make sure they can't just do these, learn these low level cues. And then we, the incorrect answer during training could be, yeah, any, any number between one and 10, that wasn't four, obviously. And um, then we would test them on choosing four in those tests when we showed them four versus five up to four versus eight. So that, yeah, that's one example of the experiments we do. Um, and so what benefit would this, this ability to recognize different numbers of things and have in their in their day-to-day -day life, I suppose. Yeah, there's a there's a few, I guess, ways of thinking about it. Um, so one is that it's been suggested that bees can count landmarks. And so being able to count and use numbers would be um, quite useful on your way to forage at, you know, a flower patch. So there were studies that were conducted, not these again weren't my work, this was well before I started my career that showed that bees could count up to maybe three or four landmarks um, before they found you know, a, a feeder of sugar water. And so that sort of showed that the, this was in a, an open environment where um, bees are flying like a few hundred meters to get there. And they're seeing these huge yellow tents on their way to, um, to get to the feeder. And so the feeder would be placed at a certain point, you know, maybe between feeder three and four. 
And so they would have to count three feeders before they found that. And then they'd change the distances um, of the feeder so that, again, they couldn't just learn to use distance or optic flow, which is, you know, how much visual information passes past their eyes. Um, and so that's that's one reason they might be able to learn numerical cues. There, there's other options that haven't really been formally tested, things like learning petal number as um, to learn rewarding flowers in combination with things like colour and scent. Um, and the other way I actually like to think of things is that because of these foraging lifestyles, so they are um, leaving the hives, if we're talking about honeybees specifically, they leave their hives and they go and find a food source, a, you know, a flower patch um, that's contain, you know, flowers that contain nectar. And when, you know, they find a good flower that provides a lot of nectar or something like that, they want to remember it. And so there's a number of things they have to memorize. They need to memorize the color of the flower. Um, they need to memorize the, the scent, the size of the flower as well, perhaps um, the shape of the flower, the exact location of the flower so that they can then go back to the hive and be able to navigate to and from that flower patch. Um, and also to be able to do their dance. So foragers do a dance to communicate to other foragers where there's a good flower patch. So there's all these things that they need to learn and then remember. And I think that sort of makes them primed to already be really good learners. So when we give them a bunch of different tasks, you know, like number discrimination, face discrimination, um, shape discrimination, they're already just so good at learning um, these all these different flower traits that they can um, extrapolate that um, ability to all different types of things. And so that it might not be necessarily that number ability is that important to them in their natural environments. It could just be that it is almost an artifact of their um, necess the necessity they have to learn and memorize um, flower cues. Well, that is just, it's nuts. I never really expected to see all this come out of uh, a bee. I, you know, I just thought bees are bees. They just go about their business, but I didn't expect there to be so much cognition going on in a bee. And when, but when you, when you talk through it, it makes sense that they have, they would have all these abilities to understand and learn um, based off what they have to do every day. Yeah. And I mean, then moving over to some other, like another case we did where we actually trained bees on, oh, sorry, we didn't do any training. This was um, kind of a, a preference experiment. So I, I've been talking a lot about learning and conditioning and we train the bees using reward and punishments. But what we can also do is test their preferences for things. And we've done this with a number of things like, do they have a preference for certain flower shapes? Um, do they have preferences for certain flower colors? Um, and what we did was look at whether they had preferences for um, uh, more flowers versus less flowers. So we thought that they would prefer to go to a flower patch of higher number of artificial flowers providing rewards than to go to a, a patch of less flowers. And so without training, what we did was, well, first we, we did have to have a little bit of training just to get them to associate the artificial flower with a reward. So once they'd learned that this yellow circle means there's a reward, um, we displayed two different flower patches to them and we used this huge range of different number comparisons. So like one versus two, one versus three, one versus four, like four versus 12. Um, like, yeah, we had, we had a lot of different um, numbers that we used. And interestingly, when we hadn't done really intensive training on numbers, they were not very good at discriminating numbers. So they were able to do just a few of the tasks. So they chose the higher number when we showed them one versus three, one versus four and one versus 12. But any other comparison, including one versus two or four versus 12, um, that didn't 
uh, they, they didn't discriminate the numbers at all and they didn't go to the higher number, um, which seemed kind of strange unless we sort of started to think about it and perhaps in a, in a natural foraging um, scenario when there is an option between one flower or, you know, 12 flowers, that's a big difference. You know, one flower when resources are scarce, that's, that's a good discrimination to make to be able to go to more than one. Um, but if we had, you know, increased numbers like four versus 12, that's putting a lot of noise in the system for the bee. And it just looks like a lot of different elements and perhaps there's no strong evolutionary um, benefit to being able to discriminate four flowers versus 12 flowers, because when you go to four flowers, okay, I'm going to get, you know, four nectar drinks <laughs> as opposed to 12. There's not a big difference there, but um, if you're in a, an environment of scarce resources where there might be only one flower over here and that's not enough to sustain you, but, you know, you've got four over here or 12 over here, then that discrimination, you know, is able to be made because there is a clear benefit to being able to discriminate between very scarce resource and um, greater resources. But it was interesting to see that even though they can be really good at doing different numerical tasks, they don't have to be. <laughs> their preference, their, I guess their innate preferences don't uh, enforce that, um, but they are able to learn it. And did you expect to learn all this when you started out? It was this beyond what you ever dreamed of really finding out when you, when you started your adventure into, into, into your studies? Uh, definitely. Um, it's hard to think back and know what I really expected um, when I began, because uh, to tell people what you do for a living is that you train bees and <laughs> you look at how smart they are. And I mean, I do a number of other things too, including, you know, things like pollination and um, working with native bees and um, insect abundance and that sort of thing as well. But yeah, this is really where I started off was um, honeybee cognition. And so it, when, yeah, when I first began, I, I would say that I didn't know what I would find at all because I wasn't familiar with the literature and I had to learn how to do these experiments. And the most amazing thing for me, I remember, was when I was learning how to recruit bees, so to come back to the apparatuses that we use to test them. And my supervisor showed me, okay, we put a drop of sucrose, we pick up a bee on this little transparent plexiglass spoon. Um, so we pick them up, we set out feeders for them that they visit um, and we'll pick one up off of this feeder and we'll take it over the apparatus and put it there and we'll give it like a really high quality sugar solution and then it will come back. And I sort of thought, mm, really? Well, like why and how? And <laughs> I don't think you're right. And the bee came back within a couple of minutes and it came back again and it came back again and it came back again and they will keep coming back all day um, while it's light basically while the while the bees are flying and they will continue to come back as long as you're offering something to them that's high enough quality so even when we actually give them quinine um, which is what they don't like and they taste that they'll still come back because the reward we're offering them is so high quality that for them it's worth tasting something that's a bit gross um, as long as they have the chance to maybe find that sugar solution um, so I guess that, I mean, even that at the beginning of my career was incredible. So to then go on and be finding things like, okay, they can add and subtract and they can see visual illusions in a similar way to us and, you know, all those sorts of things. Um, yeah, I guess that's beyond what I ever thought that I'd do. Um, and particularly considering I didn't get into research in a sort of almost conventional way. I didn't always know I was going to do research or anything like that. It's something I sort of fell into, but absolutely fell in love with it. 
Yeah, that's yeah. I mean, that makes total sense. You just mentioned before, uh, just now, uh, visual illusions. I wanted to touch on that before, but I completely feel you reminded me. So how does that work? Sorry, I, I, I keep coming back to this condition stuff. What what is that about with the with the visual illusions? So can they see things the same way that we do? Yes, so they, they see things, some visual illusions in the same way we do. So I was doing size illusions, um, the Ebbinghaus and Delboff illusions. Um, if you want to have a look at those, <laughs> look at those online, um, I can sort of describe them to you. But basically, but yeah, the basic premise is that an object in either the center of a circle um, or surrounded by sort of smaller circles looks um, bigger than uh, the same size object that um, is surrounded by bigger circles. So um, that's sort of, that's the Ebbinghaus illusion. And uh, for the Delboff illusion, it's um, a circle of the same size looks bigger when it's, oh, now I'm going to have to get this right, when it's in a, um, a circle compared to when it's not in a circle. Um, so anyway, we tested them on, um, on like sort of a combination of those illusions to find that they saw the same illusion we did. And I, I suppose this is important because it tells us that they see things in context. So some animals, they don't see illusions at all, which means that, or well, not these illusions specifically, which means they're not seeing things in context. So to give you a sort of semi-example of that, like when we look at a human face, we don't really tend to focus on like, this is what the nose looks like. Here are the eyes, here's the eyebrows, here's the mouth. We just see a face, a configured face, and it looks whole to us. And we don't focus on the different elements that make up the face. We just recognize a face by, you know, your family or your friends or something. Yeah. And so um, other animals, I suppose, using this example, would be more inclined to actually look at the individual elements that make up a face and not see it as a whole. And so showing that bees um, see visual illusions in a similar way that we do, this tells us that they see things in context and they see things more holistically rather than um, elementally. And there's also just as an interesting side point, there's animals that see the illusions in the opposite way that we do. So they'll see it as, uh, yeah, where we see objects as appearing bigger than they actually are, they'll see them as appearing smaller than they actually are. So that's sort of why we wanted to have a look at, at how honeybees do it, um, whether they would see things elementally or holistically and how they would see them. And then also, I mean, the interesting thing is how this might apply in their natural environment. So could flowers... Um, and the, the evolution of flowers, could they exploit this to make themselves seem larger um, to bees? Uh, because there's a tendency of honeybees to go to larger flowers first and then visit smaller flowers. So if you need bees to go to, you know, male flowers first and then females of the same species, it might be of benefit for the male flowers to appear bigger and the female flowers to appear smaller. Yeah, wow, that's, that's really interesting. Um, really unexpected. I'm just taken aback by how how deep this like bee law goes <laughs> <laughs> i have never heard that term before but i am definitely going to use it you can use it bee totally law. fine um what are you working on at the moment you mentioned just before we started that you just uh applied finished off a grant so what are you what are you currently working on so i'm currently working with native bees and i'm having a look at how they respond to um environmental change Specifically at the moment, I'm looking at um, how they change in response to urbanization, but there's obviously a lot of different types of environmental change and anthropogenic activities that are interesting to look at, like um, increase in pesticides or, you know, climate change, increased temperatures. Um, but at the moment, yeah, urbanization is where I'm looking. And so we have about 
2,000 species of native bee in Australia. That's approximately like ranges go up to 3,000 um, estimates, sorry, go up to 3,000. And so that's about 10% of the global bee species. So there's 20,000 species of bees in the, in the world. And so we've got about 10% in Australia, which is quite good. Um, but yeah, there's really a lack of understanding, um, particularly behaviorally of how bees respond to these different types of environmental change. So my work at the moment is to look at how they change in terms of their learning ability. That's um, a really big focus at the moment. Uh, so do bees in more urban areas, do they learn better? Because only individuals that can be uh, sort of cognitively flexible and respond really quickly to change the environment as happens quite often in urban environments. Yeah, are they more intelligent or better at learning? Um, or are they actually worse because there's a lot more stresses in urban environments, things like pesticide exposure, um, more competition, uh, less nesting resources. So a lot of native bees are either stem nesters or ground nesters. Um, so they need um, sort of different resources than what honeybees do. Um, they need bare ground cover or they need the appropriate kinds of cavities to nest in. So yeah, th th this could put a lot more stress on them, stress on their development and make them actually worse learners. Um, and then, you know, we compare that to what's going on in more natural habitats, sort of like state parks, where we know there's a lot of native flora and fauna and there's a lot more space, a lot more, um, yeah, a lot more uh, resources for them, basically. And so things that we that we test besides learning, obviously, I'm quite into learning and cognition, but also looking at personality um, distributions and uh, morphology is quite an interesting one as well. And things like flower choice behavior as well, we've had a look at do they prefer to go to um, native or invasive species because sometimes invasive species can be a lot more attractive um, flower in terms of flowers. Um, so yeah, native, we, we do have a study looking at this where um, these sort of, their, their preferences do change on how we test them, but there is in some cases a preference to go to the, the non-native flowers because you know potentially they're offering better resources than what the native flowers can offer. And what are you hoping to get from this research? Uh, well, I suppose firstly, the hope is that we can have an understanding of whether there are changes occurring. So whether urbanisation um, does impact their, if we take, take the learning example, whether urbanisation is impacting their cognition and how it is impacting their cognition. So is it um, selecting for more um, intelligent individuals or is it actually impairing cognition? And then once we know that, um, we can start to think about changes we might need to make. So if we see that we're looking across species and there are more vulnerable groups, um, so maybe some species do really, and we, we do know some species do fine in urban environments, um, but some species might not, and they might be a lot more vulnerable. Then we know, okay, we need to target these species in urban areas to actually make it um, a better environment for them because otherwise we might lose those species um, from that environment and that would be terrible. So, you know, we can do things like look at what, what sort of flowers um, do these species mostly visit? Are they specialists? Do they only go to one flower or, you know, a few closely related species of plants? Um, how social are they? How much room do they need? What resources do they need? Do they, you know, need more bare ground cover? And so we've got to sort of reduce mulching um, and, you know, are they more vulnerable to pesticides? So we need to be careful of in um, urban green spaces, what sort of pesticides and chemicals we're using there, um, all sorts of things like that. But I guess the first step is to actually work out if there are changes occurring and what those changes are. And then 
which species are most vulnerable to negative changes. Right. What's been the most rewarding thing that you've gotten out of your career so far? That's a really great question. Um, I think there's there are so many rewarding things I've had from my career so far. I, I would probably have to say personally, um, it's an appreciation of insects and invertebrates. Um, whereas I would say before I started doing this work, I wasn't aware of all the services um, and all the sort of complexity that existed in the invertebrate world. And now I'm so obviously heavily immersed in it. Um, I just can't believe I was, I, I never knew about it. And so I think that's been a really special thing for me to develop. And I also really love to share that with people through science communication and that sort of thing, obviously, like we're doing now and telling people about the really cool things I find. And um, yeah, that's sort of one of, one of the greatest things to come out of the, the work I do. Stardust MQ is a podcast made with the support of the Macquarie University Department of Physics and Astronomy and the Macquarie University Physics and Astronomy Society. Thanks to Oliver Doherty for editing this episode. Our intro music is by Poddington Bear and our outro theme is from Ketsa. I'll talk to you next time.